Hello, and welcome to On Point Speech and Debate. My name is Gustavo Frey, but you can call me Isaiah Hill. Today, the podcast is joined by Mr. Joshua Rush. Hailing from Region 6, Mr. Rush will today discuss how to create high-quality briefs with a killer narrative that will make the affirmative team quiver in their boots. I hope you enjoy. Hello and welcome back to the On Point Podcast. Today I'm joined with Joshua Rush and uh, let me pull up the little lists of achievements he sent me. So this is Joshua Rush's sixth year in team policy debate. Uh, last year in 2023, he placed fifth place. And this season, I think just a week or two ago, he pre at St. Paul National Mixer. Um, one of his favorite achievements was when he averaged 30 speaks at the regional qualifier last year. And so I'd say that Joshua Rush is a pretty qualified person to talk about what we're going to be discussing today, which is prepping neg and briefing. So uh, thank you so much for joining me today, Joshua Rush. For sure. I'm super glad to be here. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah. So one of the first questions that I had when uh, you came up here on the screen was, how long did it take you to grow that beard? <laughs> uh, honestly, so I started in, what, what was it, the 18-19 season? And by the time that COVID came around, I had a beard. So everyone's been thinking, oh, you're a senior in 2020 and then 2021. So people are just like, there's no way you should still be competing now, which I mean, it's fair, but. And so uh, can you just give me like a breakdown of your overall briefing process from start to finish? What does it involve? What do you look for? What makes it finalized? Yeah, I think when a lot of people think of a brief, they really just think of uh, 15, 20 pages that you have on. Jones Act or Seatbelts or whatever the most popular case in the region is. And it's just the list of stock issues. But I like to think of the process of briefing as way more comprehensive than that. So a lot of the time when I'm writing a brief, I'll spend 30 minutes just researching the case, not carding anything. Because I think the most critical step to briefing is just understanding the case. A lot of the time, my goal when I'm writing a brief is not how can I find the best evidence rather? How can I find what the truth is? And, and w going from that, it becomes a lot easier to then you're like, okay, here are the specific arguments I want to research. Uh, so then you'll go down kind of a, a little bit more nuanced path and then you can actually start making that brief. But I think the first step is definitely just getting a generic sense of what's going on, what the AF problem is, and kind of what they're trying to do as well. Right. Uh, so let's get into the nitty gritty here. So the first step that you do once you get a brief, let's use Jones Act, for example. Um, let's say that you have no idea what Jones Act is. What do you start doing right off the bat? So I think it can be really helpful, first and foremost, if you have, you know what team is running it, you can see who debated them, get a flow. In fact, there's an online tournament right now, so I've been kind of going into <laughs> some, some of the rooms, getting some 1ACs, because uh, I think it's super helpful to kind of understand where the affirmative team is coming from, because a lot of the time I've found that if I'm just researching and thinking that, oh, I'm so right and just finding all arguments against it, I can't, I think it's way more important if you understand where the affirmative team is coming from so you can have some terms of common agreement. Um, and I think once you have that agreement, once you kind of understand the AF case, it makes it so much easier to debate against it and to beat it from there. Yeah, that kind of reminds me of uh, a principle in Dale Carnegie's book. Um, like I think it's called like how to influence friends or how to win friends and influence people, which is like, um, don't be always thinking about like what your next question is going to be. Um, but like genuinely like listen to what the other person is saying 
and then ask questions from there. So in the same way, it's important to understand what case you're going against, getting that sense of common ground, and then moving on from there. But first, generally understanding it and seeing what they have to say. So now that we kind of understand what exactly the Jones Act is, um, then you start briefing it. You research it right away, or do you start coming up with like a strategy? So I think this kind of depends. I'd say if you have time, let's say it's a week before the tournament, and you have a couple hours to research, I'd say the most effective strategy is actually kind of thinking on your own. What are some logical arguments? Maybe even type into chat GPT, hey, what are some good <laughs> arguments against this case? But kind of just thinking more generically about what angles do I want to take from this case? Maybe thinking some creative lines of, do they solve this problem fully? What are the disadvantages that they cause? And then researching specifically from there. I think it differs, right, if it's the night of the first tournament and you're just trying to throw whatever you can into a brief. In that case, I'd say, hey, just grab as much evidence as you can and then sort through it later. But when I have time, I always like to have the process of finding about how the affirmative case and then thinking critically and engaging my critical thinking skills to formulate arguments and then research from there. Hmm. That's good. And so you said it depends upon like if it's like the, the night before the tournament or if it's like a month or two in advance, realistically, just a week or two in advance. And obviously, you want to have the most quality type brief because the higher quality your briefs are, the better you'll do in a round against them. So then in that instance, how do you prepare against impromptu necks? Obviously, like it's in the name, you don't prepare against them. So how would you go against impromptu necks? Yeah, so I think when you're going against impromptu necks, it kind of throws the entire briefing process the wayside right like you mm-hmm. see a team on postings you're like oh shoot i have nothing get this case maybe you know the case title maybe you don't so so i think the most important thing is actually kind of what we talked about earlier that when, whenever they're giving the 1ac you're not trying to think of how can i beat them what are the cross-ice questions you're genuinely listening blowing their 1ac which i know can be super super hard but you're trying to understand where the affirmative team is coming from so you can get ground and have a common place of agreement In that regard, I think it's super important to use. I I know most people don't like doing this, but my partner and I, if we're in prompter neck, we'll use two, three, four minutes of our prep time before the one NC. Because often what what we try to do then is we brainstorm, okay, what are the assumptions of the affirmative team's case? Are they assuming that their plan will solve, that the advantages that they get? Is there a problem with their evidence? Is it old? Is it outdated? How can we approach that? You're looking for the weak points of the affirmative team's case whether you want to focus in on their harms, their advantages, their mandate, whatever it may be. So I think the prep time that you use is really important to spend because you can spend three, four minutes of your prep time for your 1NC, preparing your 1NC, 2NC thesis, even into the rebuttals and kind of being able to think of arguments in that time as well. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, And you personally, do you prefer going affirmative or negative? Like what's your preference? Honestly, it depends on the resolution of what our half case is. This year, I've actually really preferred going negative, especially when mm-hmm. it's cases that I've briefed. Genuinely, like if I've ha- had the effort and put the time into researching a case, I find that a lot more fun than going affirmative, just because it's a different thing every round. Impromptu neg, not so much, but you know, I'm still working on that one too. Yeah, it's always a work in progress getting better at impromptu negs. And so when you're in impromptu neg, you said that you had like two, four minutes however much prep time it takes to develop a a strategy against the affirmative team's case that you haven't gone against before. And so in that instance, what is practically something that you would do? How would the round take 
shape? What would be some arguments that you run in prompt egg? For sure. So I actually think this kind of goes back to something we talked about earlier too. And it's just that generic understanding. If when you're writing briefs, all you're focused on is this one specific act aspect of a case, instead of researching the entire resolution broadly, you're going to have a very limited knowledge. But if you focus on researching generally, writing briefs more generically almost, a lot of that evidence will cross-apply. So my partner and I this year, we wrote, wrote quite a few briefs on generic subjects, um, whether that be pro-transportation, con-transportation, uh, some generic briefs that can kind of cross-apply to lots of different things. I think the most powerful step that my partner and I took this past year um, was writing briefs on specific disadvantages. So we'd write a brief about a disadvantage and we'd structure it just like a disadvantage would be structured with your brink, your link, your warrant, your impact, all of those things. So then if we went impromptu neg, we'd be able to use that disadvantage shell and perhaps just substitute a couple of the links. So I think whenever you went impromptu neg, you want to be thinking of what arguments can I use that I know I have research on? What cases may cross apply? What evidence do I have in my box that I know I can use and apply to this round? Hmm. That's really interesting, especially with the generic disadvantages. You know, as I'm sure you might know, it's my first year in team policy debate. And so I'm still looking for these new ideas, like making generic disadvantages and things like that. So yeah, I can definitely see how that can be helpful in the round. And so when you lay out your arguments in the structure of your speech, how do you typically lay them out? Like you have the brief forward. How do you lay these arguments that you have inside of the briefs? For sure. So I think once you kind of write a brief, once you get your 10, 20 pages, however long the brief may be, I think it's really important to formulate a negative thesis. So just as the mm -hmm. affirmative team will have something that they're defending, I think that the negative team ought to have something that they're advocating for too. It shouldn't just be the AF plan is bad because it doesn't solve or the harms aren't that big. I think a good negative press will have, this is this why the status quo is the way that it is. I think that's the question, whether it be impromptu neg or whether you've had a couple weeks to prepare that you should be asking yourself, when I'm writing a brief, how can I craft it to defend the status quo? So when you're laying out those arguments in a round, I tend to, and this can differ because there's many different strategies, I tend to prioritize the arguments about why the status quo is the way that it is in the first speech. So you get out right away and you say, hey, I know that the affirmative team has presented some harms, some advantages, but let me tell you why the status quo is the way that it is. So normally we would run the disadvantages in the first speech and then maybe more of the significant solvency points in the second negative constructive. Okay. that That's an Emory switch, right? Yeah. Okay. That's really cool. Yeah. I've been talking to a lot of more um, experienced debaters and it's interesting to see like the the difference in strategies with like newer debaters and those that are more experienced and something that i found is that those that do emory switches a lot of those are people who are more experienced is it because you think that it takes more skill to craft an effective emory switch i can't give you a specific reason why but i think generally the significant solvency points are going to be the easier ones to think of it's going to be easy to say oh half evidence is 20 years old oh, the mm -hmm. harm is being blown out of proportion, maybe their mandate has a flaw. Funding, everybody runs funding arguments. And so yeah. it's easy kind of just to think of those, whether you're impromptu neg on the fly, or even you haven't necessarily done all the research, you're kind of just taking a brief that you found from maybe your club, someone else, and kind of just throw all those out into the first speech. But I found that, especially as you develop your critical thinking skills and continue to grow in your debate, you want to reframe that narrative and kind of 
as the AF punches in the 1AC, you want to be able to punch back, which takes a lot of understanding of the resolution, how disadvantages operate. Um, because admittedly, it's harder to run disadvantages well than just run significant solvency burdens of proof. Uh, so I think a lot of that has to do with why teams run Emory Switch. The other reason, and I believe Justice talked about this in his podcast, so props to him, is the time advantage that you have through the negative block that the Emory Switch allows you to have. Hmm. Now, let's take a step back here and talk about researching, because researching is like the most quintessential skill to have to develop good briefs. And so with briefing, what would you say, or not what would you say, what is your briefing approach? For sure. So I think once you have an understanding of the case, what the AF is doing, I think it's far more important to research specific arguments because a lot of the time, if you type in, we've been using the Jones Act, type in the Jones Act, you can get a lot of NBC, ABC, CNN, Heritage Foundation, yeah. like decent sources, but not sources you necessarily want to rely on. If you type in something like Jones Act protects national security, on the other hand, you're more likely to find peer-reviewed academic papers, maybe a law, law journal, uh, things that are more credible. So I think researching specific arguments helps you find the more credible evidence. A lot of the time, I also think that debaters aren't just willing to read the long evidence. They'll see a study that's even 20 pages, and they'll be like, oh, that's too long, and then they'll go to the next one. But I think being willing to read the 20, 30, 40 pages, sometimes it's useless. Like I've read studies that are 200 pages and I've come away with maybe a background card. But then I've also found studies that are 50 pages and I've been able to find parts that completely undermine AF's narrative or whatever it may be. So I think just being willing to dedicate yourself to, hey, I'm going to sit down, I have an hour to research and I'll go to Google Scholar or I'll find a, an advanced site, maybe a study, and I'll be able to actually understand and dedicate myself to that. Yeah. So with briefing researching strategy specifically, what is your approach? So obviously we already talked about how they looked. You look at uh, what the affirmative team is saying. You understand the case first. From that, you jump right into, um, like we said, just identifying what are some arguments against it that you think up creatively. And then after that, do you use those arguments and then you try to find different quotes to go with your arguments? Or do you use those arguments as a as kind of like a something to propel you forward in your research? Yeah, so I think it can sometimes be a bit of both. Oftentimes, mm -hmm. you're making a negative brief and you have all these arguments. Some of them are stupid. I've had really dumb ideas that I've researched and I'm like, oh, I could find a card that I could squeeze into my narrative. But if that's not what that card is ac actually saying, or that's not really the point, I think sometimes it's okay to have dumb ideas. That's all part of the process. But like you kind of mentioned, it is a springboard to propel yourself. That once you think of arguments, you do some research, and maybe you're researching how the Jones Act harms national security. And in the study you read, you find that it actually protects something else as well. So then you can use that and maybe pull up a new Google tab and research a little bit more in depth about that argument. And I think it all comes back to being able to, number one, devote yourself to actually reading the hard stuff, but number two, yeah. having a negative thesis and understanding why the status quo is the way that it is. Hmm. With your briefs, is it typically something that you focus on one brief and then your partner does another brief, or do you sometimes collaborate on briefs? 
Yeah. So last year, my partner and I would often collaborate on um, most of the briefs. I'd send her stuff. She'd research. Uh, she normally researches at like 2 to 4 a.m. And I'm never up during then. So we never like actually research. But often we're working on a brief at the same time. This year, we've taken a little bit of a different approach where both of us um, are kind of researching cases independently. What we do do, however, uh, is once we submit a brief, we both make sure to look at that brief so that we understand what's going on. That way, if we hit a case, one of us doesn't necessarily know what's going on. Like, that's what we want to prevent. We don't want to yeah. walk into a round where one of us is a genius on the topic and the other one is like, uh, what's the name of this case and what does it mean? So I think e even if, and I think it's a really effective strategy, my partner and I have been able to grind out a lot more briefs this year, um, but still at least going over the evidence to try to understand, hey, this is what AF's saying, this is the thesis, this is what you're trying to defend is a really helpful thing to do. Yeah. So with briefs, how long does it typically take you to make a brief and how long are your briefs typically? Of course, it depends on the case, but on average. Sure. So I think the first question, it depends on again, the quality of the case, because if, mm -hmm. if it's a case that has a full inherency takeout, maybe like the bill's going to be signed by the president in a couple of days. Normally teams don't run those cases, but it, it can happen. Uh, I just card a couple of things on it. I'd say the average, it probably takes me about 45 to an hour, 45 minutes to an hour to get good, of like good foundational research. Normally that was about 10 to 15 pages and then often if it's a case that multiple teams are running maybe an advanced team is running i'll circle back and i'll dedicate one two three more hours of my time to find good disadvantages good links good solvency arguments that can get the brief up to i'd say 25 to 30 pages i think a good spot to have your briefs is somewhere between 15 and 20 pages because you're not going to use 80 pages of evidence in a round but having enough evidence that can fill both your speeches, I'd find would leave you about 15 to 20 pages. Yeah. And do you think that the reason why good teams see good, besides the fact that they're excellent speakers, what differentiates them from good speech, uh, good speakers instead of great speakers is the fact that they put in a lot more work into their research and their briefs? I mean, that's not always necessarily true. I think there sure. are some debaters who research their entire, like who spend a lot of time researching who maybe haven't developed the speaking style yet that they need. And so they don't do as well. Or likewise, there's some debaters who are fantastic speakers that I would not take a brief from them. Uh, just <laughs> that, you know, they haven't done as much research. And there's just different styles of approaching it. But I think once you find the cream of the crop, people who are going to do very well at nationals, who are going to do well at North Carolina next week, once the people who are going to make it very far with a couple exceptions, of course, are going to be the ones who have briefs on most cases, who have a very solid affirmative case and who put in hours of research to understand the topic and then apply it to specific cases. Yeah. And you've done a lot of research yourself because uh, this is your sixth year in team policy debate. I'm sure you've grown a lot in your research skills as well. So is there some general tips that you could recommend to people on just researching for briefs that could kind of save them some time in their six-year road to becoming a professional briefer. For sure. So I think as my time in NCFCA grew, I was always a really big researcher. Um, I was kind of what I talked about a little bit earlier. I was a really good researcher, 
really bad speaker. So I wasn't able to get super far. Um, but I was at least willing to put in time when I was younger, 12, 13, 14. I'd research a case. The evidence would be crappy, but that's often how it goes. So I think the biggest tip I could give anyone is to just do it. I think it's important not to just like have a ton of tabs open in whatever spare time you're researching. But I think it's important to dedicate maybe an hour, even 30 minutes if you have to. Hey, I'm going to sit down. I'm going to research this case. I want to actually understand it. I'm not going to be distracted by anything. I want to genuinely learn what are the good arguments? What is the good evidence about this case? I think also creating a list of good sources can help, um, whether that be think tanks like Cato, Heritage, Brookings, um, whether it be certain law journals that you may have access to, studies, whatever the topic may be. There's often think tanks like this year. Um, there's a couple think tanks that are transportation specific that have been a super valuable source of information for me as well. So just developing a list of general resources that you can continue to refer to about, hey, do they have a topic on Jones Act? Do they have stuff about trains, airplanes, cars, whatever it may be, and being able to kind of find evidence that you can trust right away. Yeah. And so one of the essential things that you mentioned to compiling a good brief is to make sure you understand what the affirmative team is getting at, where they're getting it from, what their position is on so that you can get some common ground and begin to debate. However, oftentimes that's something that you can't do with cases that are like really, really vague. And that's a struggle that I've come across this year, coming across these cases that I've seen that are just, it just seems so vague. And when I try to look it up, there's like no sources for either side. So how do you approach cases like that? Yeah, I know what you're talking about. There's some cases yeah. that it just seems that there's no evidence whatsoever. So I think in that regard, I'd say two things. Number one, if there's no evidence for either side, that probably means the evidence that asks reading is very sketchy. Um, mm. I watched a debate at the online mixer where the AF ran a case that was so obscure that no one had published it. And if you listened to the 1AC, I was able to pick out the fact that every source that they read came from the author or the co-authors of the bill that they were passing. And so there may not have been evidence. And so the negative team was actually able to point that out, right? That the reason that no evidence exists on this is because it's not a problem. That the only evidence, and I think that this is the general principle, source critiques are really valuable. When you can point out in a round, like that team did very well, and it got them to the semifinals round, that the evidence that they're reading comes from the people who are sponsoring the bill, and there's no other evidence to that effect, it's really easy to kind of mitigate the affirmative team's narrative, especially when they don't have other evidence to support it. The second thing I would say is that that's where generic arguments come in. My partner and I have been able to use arguments, our generic brief about the highway trust fund, how it's running out of money or conditioning it doesn't work against a plethora of cases that are super obscure and that use the highway trust fund as their mechanism of change. Or we've mm -hmm. been able to use a disadvantage that we've crafted about how unions will go on strike if you pass their plan. Using a lot of generic links about cases that are super obscure and maybe repealing this random protectionist policy that no one has ever heard of. So I think those two things can be really helpful when you're either going neg with no evidence about, against an obscure case, or you've been researching for two hours, just banging your head against the table, finding nothing. Yeah, that's really useful. And I guess you could also use something similar that you would do with impromptu negs, because when there's not a lot of the evidence, something that I find myself using is just logical arguments. And so you don't always need to have evidence to combat against a case. So, but especially pointing out source critiques and 
using generic arguments that you've you've had before is extremely helpful. I'd like to touch now on something that you mentioned earlier on when we were talking about um, impromptu negs and coming up with strategies with your partner. You mentioned that in order to become a better negative team, you have to rival punches with the affirmative team. You have to meet their punches with more punches. And I think that goes with the idea of narratives because obviously affirmative teams have a really compelling narrative. They have had time to write out their 1ACs to make it really strong and appealing to the judge. How do you beat that as a negative team? How do you make a narrative that rivals that of the affirmative, especially with judges that prefer to be sold on ideas? For sure. So I'll briefly comment on what you said earlier about the last point that a logical arguments are also super, super important. I think mm -hmm. often when you think of a brief, and that's kind of what we're talking about, you think of the evidence. But my partner and I will throw in logical arguments, maybe some of our own rhetoric, burdens of proof in those briefs, because sometimes if you think of logical arguments on the fly, they're not as good as if you're thinking of them when you're debating against your shampoo bottle in the shower two nights before the <laughs> tournament, because that does happen. And so yeah. putting even like not just evidence from your favorite think tanks in a brief, but also the logical points um, and maybe the burdens in a brief and being able to think of those through and crafting disadvantages based on logical analysis is also really important. When we talk about the idea of kind of fighting fire with fire, the affirmative team's 1AC should be, especially if they're a good team, super powerful. The 1AC should cause the judge to immediately say, yeah, I want to vote for you. It should be a sweep every time. So I think the hardest speech in the round, in my opinion, isn't the 1AR, rather it's the 1NC. Because the 1NC has the job of convincing the judge to not vote for the affirmative team. When they've just heard eight minutes of evidence that's been found for the last couple months, perfectly crafted rhetoric, great mandates, evidence that's fantastic. So the 1NC has I think the hardest job. I think that the negative team has to craft a narrative that can counter that. A lot of the time, there's a reason for policies. Like we don't just pass policies. Very rarely we do for political reasons. There's a real world reason why we pass policies. And since the policy has been passed, you know there's got to be some reason for it. So even if that reason may not be as compelling to you initially, if you look a little bit under the surface, that narrative can often lend itself to the negative team. Uh, lots of narratives, we've been talking about the Jones Act, for example, lots of narratives around economic freedom and how economic freedom is a good thing. And in conservative circles, that reigns, in my opinion, as one of like the highest values. Conservatives love the free market. They're really big fans of that case specifically. So finding the reason that the Jones Act was put in place, I and mean, then the narrative that my partner and I use is America first because that's something that conservatives also align themselves with. We, we explain how that manifests itself throughout the round, but having a catchphrase or a thesis that can stick in the judge's mind that as, is at least comparable to the affirmative team's thesis is really important. So you would say that in order to have a narrative that rivals that of the affirmative teams, it's important to have a thesis or a framework that aligns with the judge's beliefs so that it appeals to them. And in that way, they also feel that they should vote for the negative team. That's kind of like your answer. 
Yeah, I think obviously it's not possible to know what the ju- who the judge voted for in 2020 or 2016 or yeah. other political persuasion a lot. But in NCFC, there's a traditional audience that you're trying to appeal to and everyone kind of knows it. So I think even when cases on their face seem very conservative bent, being able to research a little bit deeper and being able to frame arguments in such a way that actually lends itself to the conservative ear is really important. I'll use the example that I mentioned earlier. My partner and I have written a generic disadvantage about unions. And as a general rule, conservatives are not in favor of unions. So when we read a a disadvantage into the round about how the unions hate it, it would be really easy for judges to just dismiss it and say, well, that's stupid. I don't like unions. However, if you frame it into the round as we don't like unions either, so we don't want to support them and we don't want to do things that make them go on strike and kill our economy because we really don't like unions, that actually lends itself to the conservative ear. They're more willing to hear you out and say, oh, yeah, I don't like those guys either. So we shouldn't be causing them to go on strike or doing doing things of that nature as well. Yeah. Something that I've noticed as I've watched more and more out rounds uh, this season is that the teams that do particularly well or the teams that have a well-crafted thesis and framework and those are the teams that have a narrative that goes against the affirmative team. So it's definitely something really useful to have. And on that note, you mentioned something about the judges. Obviously, it's not obvious to know what their political bent is. But most times you can assume that NCSEA, Christian, homeschool, speech and debate judges lean conservative. And so would you say that your narrative, you, you adjust it depending upon the judge? Let's say you, give, you get a judge and they give a, a philosophy that might might throw you a different way that you were thinking about. Or just, I guess what I'm trying to get at here is, do you ever change how you frame the round or how you make your narratives depending upon the judge you get? Sure, that's a really good question. A lot of the time that depends, again, on how much prep and research that we've put into the case. If it's a case that we know top to bottom, that we've written a really good neg, we've laid out our strats, we know exactly what we want to talk about, Normally, we don't tend to change that because we know that worst comes to worst, we could even convince the judge of our narrative. If it's a case that we necessarily haven't put that much time and effort into, we're, we're a little bit more willing to change things, right? If we maybe don't fully know exactly how we're going to go with this round, if we're willing to run a different disadvantage or things like that, we're more willing to reframe our narrative if the judge tells us their political persuasion or how they want to see the round. Um, one of my favorite examples of this was last year. I actually think it was at North Carolina, we had a judge who was a super advanced debate coach. And basically, she said that any argument flew, whether that be like the crazy arguments, like she would be willing to judge not how a normal judge would. So my partner and I kind of looked at each other and we decided that although we had a kind of a strategy prepared, we just kind of threw it to the wall and we decided to run all of these crazy theory arguments. Uh, we ran like topicality, which is obviously a theory argument we ran some critiques basically like these super advanced theory arguments that we would never run if we had a community or even a parent judge but because we had this debate coach who had been in it for 10 plus years we were able to kind of adapt ourselves to run arguments that would be appealing to them and that's another thing that separates the the great from the good is being flexible enough to change based upon your judge and so i appreciate you for chiming in there on that little story And I think to conclude here, I think it'd be best if you could give some advice on 
how exactly people should improve at briefing. Obviously, having experience is great to get better at briefing, get better at researching. So how would someone improve themselves at that using all of the tips and advice that you've given so far? For sure. So basically, this kind of summarizes what I've been saying for the duration of this podcast. But I think if I had to boil it down to a couple main things, I'd say number one, be intentional about what you're doing. Don't just research to research. Know what you want to research. Have a plan. Think of arguments ahead of time so you can sit down in that hour, maybe even 30 minutes that you have and really be intentional to get good argumentation. Um, secondly, I'd say find those quality sources. Don't just rely on, although I've read and around CNN, NBC, the peer-reviewed academic stuff is going to be really, really good. Uh, the evidence that has stats, has data, has real-world events that you can rely on, that evidence gets you so much further than just the generic, oh, Jones Act is bad or Jones Act is good. And then finally, I'd say just dive deep. I found myself 12th, 13th, 14th page of Google sometimes just because either number one, the case barely has anything, or I've just been so invested in researching that I've gotten that far into it. And though that may seem super scary, oftentimes you don't find the best stuff on the first time that you're looking for it. You find it when you're combing through the second, the third, the fourth time. So that's kind of how I'd summarize what we've been talking about. Yeah, well, that's great. Thank you so much, Joshua, for all of your insights in today's episode. I really do appreciate it. Absolutely. Thanks so much for having me on, Luke. Of course.